Hello, and welcome back to another year and another episode of Ballot to Talk About. This week, we'll be looking back on the first election of 2024 and asking the big question, how did the incumbent DPP pull off a historic third straight election victory in Taiwan? It's Sunday, the 21st of January, 2024. I pledge to be a president who seeks not to divide, but unify. Not now. I am a fighter and not a fighter. It's time for a change in this country, my friends. A real change. Joining me, as always, is my co-host Chern on the other side of the world. Are you ready to kick off another busy political year, Chern? I'm absolutely ready to kick off what is expected to be an absolute bumper election year. And it seems to have been started out with quite an exciting result, hasn't it, Sam? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be a pretty consequential political year, as we discussed a couple of weeks ago. And... Nowhere is that better illustrated, I think, than in the first election that we'll be covering of this year, which is in Taiwan, where we'll be discussing how the election unfolded, reasons behind the results, the potential heavy geopolitical consequences of this result as well. But Chen, I thought we might start briefly with any comment you might have on the re-election of Sheikh Hasina in Bangladesh, because whilst we won't be discussing this in detail, because it's a, well to put it lightly, a less than competitive election, given that the main opposition party opted not to participate in these elections. But still, any comments to make on Sheikh Hasina's fourth term in Bangladesh? Well, yeah, fifth term, I mean, fourth consecutive term. Well, Sam, let's just, in terms of the non-democratic nature of it, I thought what was interesting from my perspective was the fact that if you look at these results, the Awami League, which is Sheikh Hasina's party, had a worse election result than they did when the Bangladesh last went to the polls in 2018. The Awami League dropped 34 seats. But if you peel beneath the layer, for example, what you will find is that the most of the seats were gained by independents. And there was a very good uh, documentary done, or news clip done by Al Jazeera, who went to talk to some of these independents who were running in the Bangladeshi election. And I think it is quite um and it's it is quite understandable that their independent status can be questioned because some of them, when they even when they're out in front of the Al Jazeera candidates, openly brought the news reporters to talk about the fact that they were close to Sheikh Hasina, that they used to be members of the local Awami League, and they had run with the blessing of the local Awami League as an independent. So it seems to me that Sheikh Hasina's grasp on Bangladeshi politics is certainly electorally and in parliament seems to be absolute. Um, we're talking about the fact that she this is her fourth consecutive mm, term. Mm. She had served, she's been serving since 2008. Um, she had previously served from 1996 to 2001. She's Bangladesh's longest serving prime minister. So it seems that electorally and in parliament that she has a firm grip of the country. Would you not agree, Sam? Yeah, I mean, it's it's also not the first election that Sheikh Hasina has fought without the opposition 
participation because the Bangladesh Nationalist Party continue to want Sheikh Hasina to pledge to restore the idea that a caretaker government will be put in place to oversee the elections to ensure that its institutions are upheld, the elections are free and fair, and the transition of government is free and fair. Um, but Sheikh Hasina has thus far failed to reinstate that convention, mainly because uh, back in 2006, in the period of caretaker government, it did lead to military capture of the government that persisted through to 2008. That is their justification for not wanting to put this back in place. But it's a fascinating political history between Sheikh Hasina and Khaled Azia, the long-term political rivalry between those two matriarchs of Bangladeshi politics. And what I find more fascinating is the sort of parallels between Sheikh Hasina's first term back in the 90s and how and her interaction with Khaled Azia then and how there's a complete reverse of that going on now because that all started back in the 90s um, when uh, Sheikh Hasina was criticising the Khaled Azia's government for not installing a caretaker government in the period of elections and they were swept to elections as the insurgent opposition and now they're the entrenched government refusing to do the very same. So I think there are some fascinating parallels here, Chad. There's other fascinating parallels as well. In February 1996, after Khaled Azia's first term as Prime Minister, uh, Sheikh Hasina's Awamili boycotted the election at, at that election. But what happened is that the army then intervened and a caretaker government was installed. In June 1996, Sheikh Hasina was sworn in as prime minister. But And then we had in 2006 as well, similar situation. At the end of Khaled Azia's term, a caretaker government was supposed to come in, but then had rioting and therefore a state of emergency was declared and it was extended for two years. So... These women have actually, if you go back even further than that, these women were both fighting against the dictatorship of Muhammad Ashra and were once seen as close political allies. But it's also interesting to me, Sam, is can you think of any other country where the main, there are two main party leaders and both of them are women and over such a long, consistent period of time? I mean, certainly not. We're about to see an election later this year between two um, prominent female candidates from the main political parties in Mexico, but it's definitely exception rather than the rule because I know as we talked about last year when we did the SNP leadership election in Scotland, we asked this very question and this was one of the only examples we could come up with where a female politician had succeeded another female politician in in a national role, a head of state or head of government role. So yeah, it's it's certainly fascinating. And people might ask, why did Sheikh Hasina and Khaled Azia, yes, they probably worked together because they had joint political aims in the sense that they wanted to become prime minister and Khaled Azia entered the history books as the first female prime minister. But if you dig a little bit deeper, I think you can kind of understand why the bad blood exists between these two women. Because Sheikh Hasina, of course, was the daughter of the founding uh, prime minister and president of Bangladesh, Sheikh Mujid Rahman. And Khalid Zia is the widow of another former president of Bangladesh, Zaf Rahman. And uh, Sheikh Hasina's father, Sheikh Rahman, was assassinated by a group of army officers. And it was long thought that Zaf Rahman and some of the people around him were, were somewhat responsible for Sheikh 
Mujib's assassination in 1975. So this has been a dynastic duel between these two warring families. There is some ideological and geopolitical differences. The Awami League and Sheikh Hasina is much closer to India than Khalidizia is. But this fight between these two women has stretched for more than 50 years. And Sam, you, would you not agree with me that it's like to continue? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I don't see um, on the horizon this bad blood beginning to diffuse. And certainly the the principled stand of the Bangladesh Nationals Party against the Awami League seems certain to continue as we pursue into Sheikh Hasina's fourth consecutive term. Um, but Chern, nonetheless, both of us are we love our political history, so I think it's worth discussing anyway. And it's and it's certainly a fascinating story about these two rivals, albeit with pretty checkered political CVs. But Chern, which leads us nicely on, I think, to the election in Taiwan, which will be the main focus of this week's podcast, because it was also a battle between two well, three factions with very different ideas about the political trajectory of Taiwan. and But this time, it was a pretty competitive election. So Chen, why don't you talk us through the headline results? Well, as one female prime minister is set to continue a record-breaking term in Bangladesh, in Sheikh Hasina, another one will depart the scene because uh, Tsai Ing-wen, who is the... Um, outgoing president of Taiwan. She has served two four-year terms, so she was constitutionally ineligible to serve another term. She will be succeeded by her current vice president, Lai Ting-te, who formed the ticket with Shelby Kim, who was ta effectively Taiwan's ambassador to the United States. And the ticket was elected with 40.1% of the vote. Um, the In second place is Qu the Kuomintang, or the Chinese Nationalist Party, led by Ho Yu-yi, who got 33.5% of the vote. And coming in third place with a stronger than expected result was Ko Wenche, who was the former mayor of Taipei. And his ticket, along with Cynthia Wu of the Taipei People's Party, got 26.5% share of the vote. So Sam, we're going to move on to talk a bit about the parliamentary elections a little bit later on in this episode. But kick us off with, when you looked at these results, what was your reaction? Did Were you surprised? Yeah, I think I think I was surprised to a certain extent, particularly between um, the contrast between what has gone on in the legislative elections versus what's gone on at the top of the ticket in the presidential results. Because, Chen, you didn't um, break down the legislative results just then, but the Kuomintang Party, the main opposition party in Taiwan, has fought, has topped the polls by one seat um, in the legislative in the legislature and has actually fallen just five seats short of majority, despite the fact that you've seen the DPP re-elected on the presidential level. So that I think is an interesting reaction to the result. But I mean, on the surface, the presidential side, it's a pretty comfortable DPP retention of the presidency and it becomes the first party to win three consecutive presidential elections since direct presidential elections began in 1996. So on the surface, a pretty strong result for the DPP. but. It's when you look underneath that I think the reactions begin to sort of um, change a little bit because it's far short of majority support in Taiwan, both on the presidential side and on the legislative side. And it's a split of the opposition vote 
that potentially allowed that to happen because we, we've got for the first time in Taiwan a pretty strong performance from a third party candidate who got 26.5% of the votes off the back of insert we'll talk about this a bit later but insurgent youth support so is this a potential ticking time bomb for the main main political parties in Taiwan to be discussed and they lost control of the parliament so all in all it's a success in retaining the presidency but I don't think it's something that the DPP will be hugely happy about in private. Well, you say that. Let me just put out some context. And I think given you talked about the parliamentary election results, for our listeners' benefit, let me just tell you what the results are. So the legislative UN had 113 seats and you therefore need 57 seats for a majority. The Kuomintang party has 52 seats in the legislature with 34.6% of the vote. The Democratic Progressive Party has only 51 seats, down 10. The Kuomintang was up 14, with 36.2% of the vote, of the party vote, because it's a bit of an MMP kind of system in Taiwan, but the proportional element is so much smaller than the district-level results. So it's not quite an even split. Um, so the DPP, despite winning more votes, they have lost their legislative majority. The Taiwan's People Party have eight seats, three, an additional three, with 22.1% share of the vote. And there are two independents in the legislative UN, but they are more aligned with the Kuomintang rather than the DPP. But even if you notionally assign the two independents to the Kuomintang, the kingmakers, which you not agree, Sam, are the Taiwan People's Party because you can't, they will, they, you can barely, you can get legislation through for the government, if it's a DPP and TPP majority, and you can get you can get a blocking majority for both the Kuomintang and the DPP as well, so they are in prime spot to be that disruptive kingmakers in Taiwanese politics, isn't it, Sam? Oh, oh, big time. Um, and I think both parties will be thinking there is an element of possibility that they could work with them because on a lot of the big issues of the day, the People's Party have been um, have been less than clear on what their positions will be, particularly sort of having a dichotomous um, position on the cross-strait relations, for example, but also then favouring more social intervention to help people get on the housing ladder and also um, positions on the minimum wage, which would more align with the DPP. So you can see a world in which they could work with both parties and it'll be interesting to see what they choose to do but Chern as I'm sure we'll talk about in a second certainly in the build-up to this election it was seen more likely that they'd be working with Kaomintang because they almost fielded a joint ticket. Yeah um, actually we talked about third part I I would like to go back to the point before we talk about the joint ticket Sam is that this election in 2024 to me, it reminds me very much of the 2000 Taiwanese presidential election. So in that election, Sam, there were three candidates similar to this time round. You had the DPP led by Chen Shui-bian, who was a former president, who, who, who later became a two-term president. He won with 39.3% of the vote. Coming in second place was James Sung, who was an independent, but was who broke away from the Kuomintang, and he got 36.8% of the vote. And Lin Chen was the official Kuomintang candidate, and he got 
uh, about he got 23.1% of the vote as well. So this election, on the presidential election, we saw a clear split ticketing. And I think, and, and even more of a parallel to then, in 2000, the DPP had no majority in the legislative UN as well. It was actually only in Tsai Ing-wen, when she first was elected in 2016, that the DPP had both the presidential election majority and a parliamentary election majority. So for the first eight years when the DPP first came to power, they had to govern where they controlled the presidency and they had to deal with a slightly hostile parliament. So at least there potentially could be some institutional memory within the DPP about how to deal with this scenario. Yeah, that's very interesting. I hadn't clocked that at all. And talking about this idea about the, the potential for split tickets, I think that's quite high, Sam, because just look at the difference between the parliamentary and the presidential election results. Because in the parliamentary election results, they did run a joint ticket, unlike in the presidential election results. And what do we see? What we did see is despite getting less of the Kuomintang getting less of the vote, because of the so much more, because it's first past the post at district level, they have more seats despite having less votes. And to me, this only speaks to me of the fact that mm. The so-called pan-blue coalition, i.e. the parties that support closer relations with China, had got their act together. Given the margin of the presidential election results, they could have well have done this, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, Chen, in, in a second, we'll talk a bit about how um, the DPP managed to win this election. But I, I think there is a big point here about trying to understand whether the two parties actually, whether you can combine these two sets of vote, because... I spent a lot of time this week trying to look into the TPP electorate. What does it look like? Where have they come from? And which political party would be their natural home? Because I think that's important in trying to understand whether the the opposition did miss a trick in this election. Because I'm not entirely sure that there is a huge amount of convergence within these two electorates that turned out on the day. Because you do see that a lot of the cited voters of the TPP are much younger people, quite a lot of first-time voters. I mean, there was about, I think, 7% of the electorate was voting for the first time in this election. And a lot of the focus of their campaign ended up being on things like the housing crisis, unemployment, cost of living, which is a very different campaign that was going on at the top of the ticket, which was much more the like the headline contest between are we uh, in, about how Taiwan's cross-strait relations are going to continue going on. And I just wonder if, had there been a joint ticket between the KMT and the TPP, would that energy, would that same sort of insurgent, anti-establishment energy have surrounded that ticket that's, that surrounded a separate third-party ticket? And I just, that's where I'm struggling to understand whether we see a combined 60% of the votes between these two parties. But I think had they fielded one ticket, I'm not entirely sure that we would have seen 60% because I think some of these voters who surrounded Ko Wen-che maybe would have sided with the DPP when push came to shove about the future of Taiwan as a country um, versus what the KMT were putting on the table. That's just a hunch in what I can see in these voters. No, I think that's a fair assumption to make. I mean, if I just look at raw votes, in 2020, the Kuomintang got 5.5 million votes, and this time around, they got 4.6 million votes. So they have dropped a little bit. I suspect some of them, turnout was lower, so some of them did probably 
did not vote from last time round, or they did not, um, they they did vote for Coenter this time round, and uh, the DPP lost three million votes. And you're right, a lot of it is probably young people who are who wanted to send a message to um Taiwan's administration, particularly over the handling of cost of living and housing, but. Yeah, because let's not forget her approval rating by the end of her presidency was pretty dire compared to where it had begun. So there had been some signs already that the administration was becoming more unpopular and, and the sort of baseline economic indicators were one of the main reasons for that. True, but I do think that if uh, if not for the fact that she, what she was, while she, her approval rating was down... But I still think it was strong enough to the fact that she has created history in being able to hand over the presidency to her vice president, actually. So unlike in 2016, when the then Taiwanese president, Ma Ying-tio, was just so unpopular that the, the Kuomintang candidate in 2016 just refused to turn to be in the same uh, Eric Chu, who is now the chair of the Kuomintang. He just didn't, Ma Ying-tio didn't play no role whatsoever in the Kuomintang campaign. Whereas Tsai Ing-wen did play a role in the DPP campaign. She appeared in some of the ads, she appeared in some of the rallies as well. So the DPP felt sufficiently comfortable that yes, her approval ratings are much lower than they were eight years ago. And that's naturally due to the wear and tear politics. But it's not enough, like in 2016, for the then Kuomintang having to resort to extreme measures to kind of disavow and distance themselves in that case. So I, I do think there is a distinction there, an important one. Yeah, I, I think I think you're right. I think I was more trying to just understand what what the um, TPP voter base looked like, um, and there were some interesting stats about the housing crisis, for example, going on in Taiwan that could help explain what was going on. Because I think one of the points I was going to make when you asked me about my reaction to the result is, you wonder whether the geopolitical or international consequences of this election will so offset the domestic consequences that we wouldn't be talking too much about the classic domestic indicators about mm. housing, social security, about the economy. Um, and it's interesting that the TPP certainly put that front and centre in their campaign. Well, what just one point is what I find interesting is I look, I compared the opinion polls the last opinion polls that are published for the 10-day media blackout and the results, the DPP underperformed the opinion polls slightly and the TPP did overperform. And I wonder as among those cohort of young voters that did switch over, that provided that the Kuomintang performed roughly according to their opinion polls. So I do think that potentially there was this last-minute switch of young voters as well. And I think you cannot deny them, and this is potentially a good pivot, is that the geopolitical situation of Taiwan is so different than it was four years ago. Four years ago in 2020, six months beforehand, you had the massive Thai Hong Kong protest, the national security law was going on. There was a lot of fears and a lot of Thai young Taiwanese people realized that the value of democracy that they had was incredibly precious. And that I suspect ensured that a lot of Taiwanese were potentially disappointed by some of the domestic reforms made by the Thai administration Given the stakes involved, the existential nature of Taiwan, they a lot of them probably, I suspect, reluctantly voted for the DPP. Fast forward four years from now, the reality is that cross-strait relations, whilst they are frosty, were not the main campaign issue in this election. This was a 
domestically focused election. And so that's why I think that for a lot of young people, although they they, they probably could not vote Kuomintang because the Kuomintang is a lot out of step with them, in particular, the views on the cross-strait relations. So that's why it's important. But the young people still felt important that they had to send a message to the DPP that something had to change. And we could clearly see that in the legislative election. Mm, I actually saw a survey um, run by Commonwealth magazine, actually, that was talking about what a voter's top priority going into this election. And interestingly enough, economic development ranked top, which is not unusual around the world at the moment. But it was a narrow top um, to uh, the cross-strait relations. But amongst the 20 to 39 age group, it was quite far and away the top priority. Um, And they were talking about affordable housing, minimum wage rise, skills investment. And you saw the DPP message, I think, change quite starkly in trying to offer some um, offer a prospectus that covered those things, because I think they were panicking um, because I think they thought that their position on cross-strait relations and Beijing's posturing would just carry them over the line. And I think they saw throughout the campaign that that wasn't really going to cut it. Um, So the domestic agenda really further was fueled in this election. And it's not the only thing that the parties disagree on because they also were talking about the energy supply of Taiwan because there is quite a distinct divide on energy policy amongst the main parties. Um, Lai favours the elimination of nuclear energy. The other two supported nuclear energy expansion. Um, So there was those divides going on. And I think the further you got into the campaign, the more nitty gritty it became about domestic politics. You want to talk about a housing issue, Sam? I've got a great anecdote. I'm not. I'm not. Is maybe this is a correlation, but whether it's a causation, I'm not entirely sure. Do you know which were the four biggest cities, or four biggest places where I gave the game away? The four biggest places where the Kuo got the highest share of the vote were in uh, Hunchu City, Taoyuan City, Taichung City, and. Uh, Hunshu County as well. So all in the north urban core. And that's where, and it's striking to me, I read out three cities, Sam, where he got over 30% of the vote. So I think you cannot deny that that this campaign was incredibly powered by young people, Mm. Sam. Mm. And I've got another fun stat for you, Sam. Did you see what the margin of victory was for lighting the in Taipei city? I did not. Well, I can tell you that this ticket got 587,897 votes and Kuomintang's Ho Yi got 587,000 votes, 258. So it's a margin of 641 wow. or 0.04%. And I have to think that if not for Kuomintang, the Kuomintang probably would have won Taipei City. Thank God it wasn't the Electoral <laughs> College then. Yeah, which would have been a symbolic victory, I think, for them in this election. So Sam, let's move on because we can't talk about Taiwan without talking about China. How do you think it is likely with um, lighting this re-election that the domestic front, because of the fact is opposition control legislature, legislation will be very slow. It will probably require a lot of negotiating and will be quite hard to pass. So therefore, the appointment of who the premier of Taiwan will be a very interesting choice. But where the president has much more sway is foreign policy and sam you cannot look beyond taiwan's foreign policy without talking about relations to taiwan isn't it so the big question is how is taiwan how is china more importantly 
going to view a candidate who once declared himself to be a principal worker towards Taiwanese independence. I mean, I think it's safe to say that Beijing's attention to this election was pretty strong. I mean, they described it, not hyperbolically at all, this is a direct quote, that the election was a contest between war and peace. So that is the sort of headline we have to look at this election under, because Beijing has made no secret of the fact that they despise, I think it's safe to say, uh, Lang Xingte and the DPP more widely, but specifically the section of the party that he represents, um, because he's much more um, hardline on Taiwanese independence than his predecessor was. Whether that comes into practice, I think, is, is a different story, because I think there's a, he does have an element of pragmatism, but his personal held convictions are much stronger um, than Tsai Ing-wen's before him. Um, and it's it's been a pretty inflammatory campaign from, from China. Since the election has taken place, there has been a lot of fair muted response from China. But you have seen them criticise both the US and the UK for congratulating Lai on his victory. Um, you have seen them continuing to send in uh, spy balloons above Taiwan. You see this kind of like posturing going on um, and they're certainly pretty angry that the opposition wasn't able to get over the line in this election because the opposition favours much closer relations with Beijing than than the current government will do. But I wonder if privately they might be pretty content that on the legislative side the opposition were able to sneak out a victory and reduce their and and remove the government's majority because I think they will see that as within the Taiwanese population they're not unanimously opposed to to what's going on but nonetheless I think they'll be pretty frustrated that there's yet another president who will want to continue to move an inch Taiwan away from Beijing's influence. A couple of points there I think it does show the limits of China's influence in Taiwan isn't it despite all the bluster what impact did it have Sam? I guarantee that it probably swayed virtually zero votes from yeah, I one mean, if anything, party to the it other. might have helped the DPP because I think they were looking in a pretty tricky situation on domestic policy going into this election, and I just wonder if Beijing's policy, Beijing's posturing, motivated some people who might have been lukewarm on the DPP to think, you know what, I'm not having Beijing dictate how this election goes, and I'm going to stick with the DPP even though I have domestic reservations. You might have seen some people have that opinion. And and I think it's important to state as well is that Leitinger has moderated his position on the Taiwanese independence issue. He has now said that there is no need to declare independence as, quote, Taiwan is already a sovereign, independent country, i.e. de facto has independence given a separate judiciary system, yes, elections, for example, it just is not de jure independent. So he has moderated his stance deeply. And you're right, he comes from a much more so-called, quote, deep green faction of the DPP, kind of like the hardlines element of the DPP, which, why, which is why I think his choice of running mate was very interesting itself. Because I think, what because uh, Shelby Kim, uh, Taiwan's envoy to the US, is from the moderate wing of the DPP, i.e. the tying one view, view uh, wing of the DPP. So he formed the ticket that stretched across DPP's factions. Now, officially, the DPP dissolved this faction in 2006, 
But I think uh, Shell Bikin's on the ticket was a message that for moderate Greens who had faith in Tsai Ing-wen but had concerns about Lai, that it was a safe ticket to vote for itself. So, and Lai Ting-te promised on the, on, in relation to foreign policy to be, quote, Tsai 2.0, particularly mm. in relation to cross, cross trade and US relations. So it's clear that he has made some efforts to moderate. You can see that in his language and his picking of his vice presidential candidate are two such clear indicators. I mean, I wouldn't say that Xiaobi Kim is a favoured name in Chinese circles because she has been twice sanctioned by the Chinese government and in, and incites Beijing's ire. But yes, I think in terms of the kind of policies going forwards, there maybe is, it maybe is an indication of moderation of Lai's personally held convictions. And I would say though, Xiaobi Kim, as Taiwan's representative to the US with its official title, I think she's had had some... If you think about the fact that Tsai Ing-wen has stopped over in the US and has met Kevin McCarthy, for example, Nancy Pelosi's visit, of course, coincided with her being in uh, Taiwan's representative to the US. Some She has quite good links with the United States, isn't it? So it does seem to also reinforce that this continuity of policy, particularly on foreign policy, is likely to continue. And maybe that could leave lighting the more way able to focus on this probably what kind of congested and difficult domestic, not only political, but uh, economic situation that many ordinary Taiwanese voters face. And they voted by giving the opposition a majority in the legislative UN. Mm. I mean, Chern, just to round off the chat, and I know it's um, pure speculation, but we've talked a lot about what lies policy towards China might be. How do you expect Beijing's reaction to go from here if you are, if you are predicting the future? Well, that's a million-dollar question, isn't it? Um, I, think, I think all in all, you know, if we had followed the opinion polls, this was the result that was going to take place. So Beijing could prepare for it. Now, that doesn't mean that they tried to do everything in order to change the outcome. They certainly tried to. But I just think it would be just be this standoffish, I see status quo that we've had over the last eight years of the Thai administration will continue. We saw two days after the Taiwanese presidential election result, Nauru was one of the latest countries switch its allegiance from Taiwan to China. I suspect China will seek to go after Taiwan's remaining allies in around the world. It dwindled significantly under Tsai Ing-wen's administration. And I suspect China will be trying to do as much as possible to try and pick off Taiwan's remaining diplomatic allies. But I think in a funny way is that officially, whilst Taiwan has not been able to get too many allies, unofficially, it probably has gained a lot of international support over the last eight years and with the successful holding of a free and fair election. It's like particularly countries in Europe and the United States who have looked China towards China warily might unofficially be much more willing to work with Taiwan yeah. through other circles because Ta they could they can see what China is doing, picking off its remaining allies, and they are fearful of a strong China in the Asia-Pacific region. So therefore, I suspect, in many ways, whilst Taiwan might seem to have less official friends, I think the situation, if you just peel beneath the surface, could be a little bit different. What do you think, Sam? Oh, I, th I think you're absolutely right. It's, I think there are now 60 countries on top of the 13 that actually 
formally recognised Taiwan as a sovereign state, who have non-diplomatic representation there, including the UK and the US. And I think it's one of those things where the longer this sort of situation continues, the more you're going to move towards a sort of situation where it's a de facto recognised nation, but not necessarily a de jure one. And that's maybe going to be where the story goes from here, because the more you have countries like the UK and US sending missions there, sending high-profile politicians there, inviting their high-profile politicians to come here, the more you're thinking, well, you, you pretty much recognise it in the same vein as other sovereign states, even if you don't de jure represent it. And I wonder if we're going to see that kind of engagement continue to expand now that you've got the EU, the UK, the US, some huge um, diplomatic players all having that sort of de facto recognition of Taiwan, um, even though it's certainly in high foreign policy circles they wouldn't say so. Well, this trust visited Taiwan, isn't it? As a former prime minister, <laughs> as one of the UK's former prime ministers, as a result. So yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, I think as well, if I look at Taiwan's position as well, the problem is, is that from China's perspective, is that militarily, they are just so much bigger and more significant than Taiwan and could probably take over the island pretty easily. But what I think this election is, it's been another clear indication is that the longer China doesn't intervene militarily, I think China and particularly Taiwan are moving in divergent paths in terms of how Taiwan views China. The longer that they are separate and there's this de facto independence we're talking about, this idea of the Taiwanese identity of very much my own domestic policy deciding the election result, which usually takes place in most other countries, where unlike, because Taiwan in the past, foreign policy has really dominated Chinese elections. I think this is a, a good case to be made where this is the first election in a long time where cross-strait relations have not been the number one issue, and it was more decided on domestic issues as well. And the longer that the Taiwan has de facto independence, I think the process, if China was to invade, to assimilate Taiwan back into China, that task becomes a lot more difficult. Exactly. Well, Chen, it's been a fascinating discussion about Taiwan, and it's a nice way to kick off what is, as we keep saying, is going to be a pretty consequential year of national elections across the board. And we'll be discussing a few of them to a certain extent next week as well. Well, not the next time as well. Before you go, though, Sam, this is the first big two, well, one and a bit elections we have talked about on this podcast. Do you have any takeaways or lessons that you have learned from what is this first election of 2024? Um, I think it's difficult to have takeaways from Bangladesh because it was not a particularly competitive election. But certainly from Taiwan's sense, I think you hit the nail on the head in the last point you just made, which is it is quite rare around the world that foreign policy is a key issue in an election. And Taiwan, more than others, has had that in the past because of its precarious geopolitical position. But still, even in that environment where the rest of the world is talking about this election because of geopolitics, within the country, economic fundamentals still matter. And you've seen the rise of a third party candidate because of that. You've seen limitations on the strength of the government party because of that. And you've seen both key political parties whose historic dividing line has been about Beijing relations tr start to make 
clear dividing lines on social security, on housing policy, on energy policy, on economic policy. And you see those fundamentals, even in an election that for 30 plus years has been defined predominantly by foreign policy. And I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I think in many ways, Taiwan is becoming as had the issues infecting Taiwan were very similar issues that we've been talking about over the last 12 months, isn't it? Where we've seen the fragmentation of the traditional two-party system, clear evidence of that in Taiwan today. Um, we've seen the rise in discontent with anti-establishment and people dissatisfied with the status quo and due to rising cost of living and housing issues, same thing we're seeing in Taiwan. So actually, ironically, this election probably unlike the last year in Taiwan, have been more so-called, quote, normal compared to some of the other elections that we talked about. So I think that's roughly the same point in which you were making a little bit earlier. And on the foreign policy side, what I find interesting is that in many ways, um, Taiwan will continue on its status quo. We, we, see it, we, we say it's getting less friends officially. And I think the same thing can be applied to Bangladesh as well, because the conduct of the election the US and the EU, for example, the EU has said nothing about the Bangladeshi election, which I find interesting. Meanwhile, China, India, and Russia were three countries to openly congratulate uh, Sheikh Ghassina on her election as well. So I think Taiwan officially and Bangladesh itself might become more the foreign policies of these two countries. In Taiwan's case, we'll continue to reorientate towards the US. And in Bangladesh, it might reorientate towards China. So when China loses one potential partner right now, it might gain another one. And I will say this though, Sam, on the foreign policy front in Bangladesh, I do think it's interesting because Sheikh Hasina has an in when she was sworn in a couple of days, a couple of weeks ago, in a massive reshuffle of the cabinet, she removed both the foreign minister and the deputy foreign minister. I can't, I do think it is because she feels that she needs people in there who can reassure, in particular, the West and allay their concerns about uh, Bangladesh's uh, electoral record. Very, very interesting. Um, but, Chen, we've run out of time, and that is it for the latest episode of Ballot to Talk About. Do join us again next time when we will be reviewing the beginning and potentially the ending of the US primary season. And we'll also be previewing the upcoming general election in Indonesia, one of the biggest single day elections, well, the biggest single day election in the world. And as always, we'll continue to keep you up to date on the world of politics and elections from around the world. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at at ballot underscore talk. And please leave us a rating, review, tell your friends about us or even email any feedback or comments to ballot to talk about at gmail.com. My name is Sam and until next time, we'll speak to you soon.